I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Amanda Lynn is a theatre creator and arts administrator based in Toronto. Her first full-length play, Between a Walk and a Hot Pot, is premiering with Cahoots Theatre from January 28th to February 12th at the Theatre Centre Incubator. In this conversation, we talk about how she came to write that play, its development, the importance of finding community, as well as her theatre origin story. Just for fun, we also discuss what kind of heist we would pull if we were to create a heist movie. Here's our conversation. So Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. Your play, Between a Walk and a Hot Pot, is currently in rehearsals. In fact, I, I believe you've joined me after a full day of rehearsals today. Yes, that's correct. Uh, first off, how are rehearsals going? They're going really well. I'm getting to eat very well, which is one of the <laughs> pros of doing a play with food because today we did our first run through with the food. And then we finished the run and it was lunchtime and the stage manager was like, well, someone needs to eat all this. And I was like, I'm on it. So I had a delicious meal. The one problem with that is that we eat, like we'll do a run in the morning and we'll eat. And then we're just so tired. Like I, especially hot pot really just like, (laughs) just really knocks us out. So Mm -hmm. I have to like really Mm -hmm. dig deep to find energy for the afternoon. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe it would have been good to build in a little nap time. Yeah, so I think could, like, I finish. think so. Yeah. Now, joking, it, sort of jokingly, but mm-hmm. did you create this show so that you could like, <laughs> eat a whole lot of hot pot? Um, I mean, not speci- I don't think I was thinking that far because when I first started writing this play, it was literally just I was in my fourth year of university. This was, I think, 2017, like December 2017. I was home for the holidays. And I was just bored. Like, I wasn't thinking, oh, this play will eventually happen and I will eventually get to use government grant money to eat hot pot. I was just like, I need something to entertain me. <laughs> so I wasn't thinking quite that far at, at the point when I started writing. Um, for those who who don't know much about the show, it's, this is a premiere for this show, right? Mm-hmm. So outside of your own circle, really nobody's seen this show. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me 
about Between a Walk and a Hot Pot? Sure. So it's called Between a Walk and a Hot Pot. And then the tagline is Asian Canadian Dinner Theater. So the audience gets to eat hot pots during the show. Um, so it started <laughs> it's, it started out as an autobiographical solo show. So I walk out, I'm like, I'm a mandolin. And like, here's hot pot. And here's how my family eats it. And I kind of tell some stories about my family. And it's, it's been five years since I wrote it. So it's kind of become this whole other thing since then. But essentially, it's about um, my, my connection with my culture as like an Asian Canadian, as someone that was born in Canada and often feels like I don't quite fit in in Canada. And I also like going back to Taiwan, I don't speak Mandarin. I feel like I often have to prove my Asian-ness to people. So I feel like that also is kind of like that's the between <laughs> of the between a walk and a hot pot. Um, so it starts out as... Amanda comes out and like introduces the show and she's like, I'm this all knowing Asian expert and I'm going to walk you through how to eat hot pot and you're going to get to eat it and enjoy and it's going to be so authentic. And then things kind of fall apart from there and the show starts crumbling and Mandy has to question um, what she's doing there and why she's doing it, essentially. In some ways, I mean, you had me at the audience gets to eat hot pot. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, for, for anybody who's had hot pot, I'm sure they're in just mm -hmm. from that. Um, I, I'm sort of getting a sense from you about, about the driving, uh, inspiration behind this show. You know, you mentioned that you were bored during the Christmas holiday. Yeah. You were, you were writing, um, aside from just the boredom and the food, uh, and also like trying to tell your story, what, what's the, what was the motivation to, to keep writing this show to, uh, to, to go from like an initial idea to put it into a fully formed show? Hmm, um, I feel like it's been a series of little steps along the way that kept me going on it. And a lot of it does like come down to <laughs> people gave me a deadline and then I kept writing. Cause I honestly think that if that hadn't happened, I probably would have stopped somewhere along the way. So I'm really thankful to have made it to this point. Um, so I wrote it over the Christmas holidays I never really intended to be a playwright. It was just something that I started doing when I graduated because it's the thing you can do with no one telling you to. Like, I also wanted to direct and perform, but like you kind of need people to give you those opportunities. Whereas writing, it's like, I can just start writing. So that's how I got on that. Um, and then I came to Toronto and I applied. It was I was just working at a coffee shop, like trying to find my in. Um, in the theater industry. So I ended up applying with the project to the Ergo Arts Festival, which if you haven't heard of it, is a really fantastic festival. Um, I think they might be taking a bit of a break now, but when they were running, it's essentially um, a festival of new works and it provides some development support for the playwrights. And the only rule is that the plays need to pass the Bechdel test. So it, um, I applied with this project and I did a stage reading, and that's where I met a lot of the people that are still collaborating on the show now. Um, Kenzie Zhang, who's plays the, I like to say the play is like a one and a half person show, because if the play went as it should have, as like the, the main character wanted it to, then you wouldn't have seen this other character. But Kenzie plays the production assistant who kind of just shows up and starts like challenging Amanda. Um, so I met Kenzie during that festival, as well as Alin Kwan, who's still the dramaturg on the piece. So that really kind of gave me the encouragement of like, oh, like this might be something that I should continue to explore. And I applied to recommender grants and I kept writing. And then I 
happened to be working at Cahoots Theater, just doing like five hours a week admin. Like I was really just the person who filed things. That was my job. Um, but that was around the time that Tanisha Tate was taking over from Marjorie Chan there and was looking for things to program. So it really was just like a timing thing that I happened to send my script to Tanisha around the time um, that she was looking to program shows. And that was, it was originally supposed to be in 2021. So it's, <laughs> we all know what happens there. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I guess like it was a series of just like small things that kept me interested in the, in the show along the way. And it definitely has changed a lot because it was so personal. It still is personal. Um, but as I've changed, the show's kind of like somewhat kept up with me, <laughs> hopefully. Sure. I mean, you, you sort of, you're playing a version of yourself mm -hmm. on stage. Um, how has that character of Amanda uh, changed as you've been creating the show? Mm -hmm. um, actually, I think that the character has not changed as much. I would say that the character as it is now still kind of represents this younger version of me. Mm. Um, I think what changed was me the writer like my overall message that i'm trying to get across has changed and also so the second character the production assistant was introduced pretty early on and that was like at first just like the more cynical version of me because the main character amanda is very naive like just like freshly graduated like just wants to be successful and is like kind of willing to do whatever and like bend her morals to do that um, and the production assistant was kind of like second Amanda, who was cynical and like, why are you like, you should be more thoughtful. And it really was only when Kenzie stepped into the role at Ergo, uh, Fest, uh, Ergo Pink Fest that it was like, oh, this is a this should be a real person. Like this should be not just Amanda one and Amanda two, but like a human being. Um, and I feel like that's kind of where the project has shifted is in the, the interaction between these two people who have very different views, but are both also like, navigating the same thing which is trying to like being an Asian Canadian and trying to navigate what that means and uh, especially under all these expectations of what people think it should mean or what the funding bodies and like what audiences want you to be when you get on stage as an Asian um, so I would say that's mainly where the changes happened now um, you've mentioned that uh, the, the the hot pot the the meal goes wrong mm -hmm. was that always part of your plan that 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 would be the, a dramatic turn that the meal would go wrong? Or is that something that happened as you developed the play? Um, I mean, when I first wrote it, like sitting in my childhood bedroom in Pickering, Ontario, it definitely was more of a just a storytelling thing where I was like, I'm going to serve people hot pot. I'm going to tell them some stories of, about like food and my, me and my family. Um, but in the, so before I came to Toronto, we did a pilot production with the actual hot pot in Kingston, which is where I was going to school at the time. And that version already had the show somewhat going wrong, which I guess, you know, it's, it's been so long. I don't quite remember what spurred that to happen, but maybe it was just, I don't know. It's more interesting to like see the character of Amanda, like scramble and like you get, cause she's very like put together at first. She's very like, this is my show. Like I'm an expert. I'm very in control and it's really interesting to see like the true flashes of who she is, like come through in those moments of the show, not going the way she planned. Um, now you mentioned growing up in Pickering. I have to, I, I spent my teenage years in Ajax. So oh, nice Durham. <laughs> next door neighbors, next door neighbors. Um, 
one of the things that I always like to talk about is is the the origin story for every theater person. Everybody mm-hmm. has their own story. One of the things that I find interesting about your story, and I do want to hear about the what drove you there. But first, I noticed that you know you went to Queen's University mm-hmm. and you studied uh, social psychology, theater, and business. Yes, which seem far apart, but also mm-hmm. when you think about it, nicely related. Um, yeah. What what drove you to do like three things while you were at university rather than just the one? Yeah, so um, at Queens, you don't have to declare a major in first year, which is something that drew me to it because I definitely did not know what I wanted to do. Um, so you declare your major after the first year. So I went to Queens thinking I was maybe going to do a theater major or like a stage and screen, which is their film and drama program. I was maybe going to do that. And then I found psychology like psychology 101 pretty interesting and important context here is that my mom's a psychologist so I grew up around psychology um I've always found it pretty interesting um so at the end of first year I was kind of like hmm should I major in theater should I major in psychology and then I had this thought and I my parents have always been very encouraging to me to pursue the arts if that's what I'm passionate about but I definitely had the narrative in my head of like oh if I go into the arts like it won't be as stable which is true it has been true (laughs) um so I kind of thought to myself well if I want to work in psychology I will definitely need a degree like no one's letting me do psychology without a psychology degree that's just not going to happen but and then on the other hand if I want to work in theater like maybe I can get by without the theater degree like maybe people will still let me do that um And I mean, it's worked out because I'm doing theater now um, full time, but there's definitely moments because I don't think that there's like nothing gained from a theater degree. Um, So I definitely there's moments where I feel like I'm missing out on something or there's something I need to catch up on. But I also appreciate coming into it from a different angle. And there's elements in the show where I where I talk about psychology Um, and the business aspect kind of came out of I mean, I'm looking back on it. I'm kind of like, why did I do that? I don't know how much it's really playing into my life uh, now, but I was doing that because I knew that if I wanted to do psychology, I wouldn't be a therapist. I was thinking maybe I would be like a consultant or something, which now that now, now I look back on that, I'm like, I would not do well in like a corporate environment, but um, that's why I did the business, but it does kind of all tie into each other somewhat. I joke in the show that those three skills would make me a very excellent con artist because I'm good at like <laughs> convincing people of things and like the business side. Anyway, when I got to third year, I was kind of at that at the end of that year, kind of like, okay, I for sure want to do theater, but I didn't want to go back and redo the entire degree. So here I am with psychology degree. And now it's like, I like to joke with my mom because my brother and I both did psychology degrees and neither of us are using them. Both of us are in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost like just sort of like doing the thing. I'm going to do this thing so my parents are happy that I've done this thing. And then I'm just going to forget about it. Yeah. I feel like that's such (laughs) a thing, especially with like Asian immigrant children, is you feel like if you want to go into the arts, you still have to get that like legit, (laughs) legit degree in air quotes first. And I'm I'm sure that's like slowly changing. But yeah. (laughs) Um. So just to get into like the 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 inspiration for theater and to going into mm-hmm. theater, um, you sort of like your parents were supportive were supportive of you going into the arts if that's what you wanted to do. But when did that first start becoming a thing? What 
what is it that first started drawing you to theater? Mm. Well, I, from a, a very young age, I was always like putting on plays and making my brother be in these plays. I would like chop up old home photos to make like a program. Like I did the admin too, as a kid, I was not just like the director and the performer and the writer. I also did all the like front of house and like I made tickets. Um, and I also did a lot of like plays and skits with my stuffed animals. And I know people joke like that's just being a child. Like that's not necessarily a theater artist in the making. Um, but I think that's probably where I started like it's just like where I naturally like was drawn to was storytelling. Um, and then I like did some theater classes and like throughout high school, I was pretty involved at the theater there. And obviously in high school, at least at my school, there wasn't really much that you could do outside of acting. Um, you could, uh, there weren't as many like tech or directing opportunities. So that was definitely something I started to explore more in university. I was very involved with the um, like extracurricular theater in university um, so much so that like people during school would forget that I was a psychology major. And like, even now, I think some of my friends forget that I was a psychology major just because I would like go to the drama formals. Like I didn't know people in psychology really. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just always been something that I've been drawn to. So I, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to kind of follow that passion. Although I do believe that it's something that I would have used in any field that I went towards, I think. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting because you mentioned like the, the putting on plays. And I do think mm -hmm. there's some people who would say that, yes, that is part of that's being a kid. But also, I feel like that's I've heard that as as an origin story for so many people. Mm -hmm. Like we put on plays and I think that there is there each of the people who grows up like putting on plays in their living room and forcing the relatives to watch or whatever. That's like a a. a a nascent uh, uh, a theater artist that eventually can either go into the theater or have that dream uh, taken away or they, they, they decide that's not what they're going to pursue. But I feel like that's like the, the beginning sprouting of a, of a theater artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I do think so much of theater, at least the way that I like to do theater is kind of returning to that very playful childish joy. And there was definitely a period and I'm still like struggling with this, like as you become professional, where you start to concern yourself more with like, will people like it? Like, will people think it's like good art that for me at least <laughs> can really get in the way of that playing? So it's nice to kind of remember, like to remember the roots of why I like it. Um, is It's like in the like play, in the storytelling, like the creativity unhampered by like realism <laughs> sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that I think that play is like a, a very important part. I think that mm -hmm. if we get too bogged down with is it good art? Will people think it's good art? We end up not making good art. But mm -hmm. I think that if we it, to me, if my goal is I just want my audience to, you know, have a uh, to have an enjoyable time, whether we're talking whatever topics we're talking about, I want them to enjoy themselves and to leave having said that was a good use of my time. Yeah. That's really all I care about. And, and maybe they will think it's art and maybe they won't, but I think that one way or another entertaining them has to be the number one thing. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot too about like what we consider to be high art versus like low brow or things that are even just crafts versus art. And a lot of it does have to do with like class and just like the barrier to entry to join something. 
So it's been nice to kind of try to step away from those expectations a little bit. I personally love low art. <laughs> I love I love slapstick. I like I like hijinks. I like all of that stuff. Um, because, you know, I think that that, you know, we can get bogged down in in the idea of of of, of class, the you know, who's going to enjoy it, who's it for. But then even the high art of, say, I don't know, Shakespeare has like yeah. slapstick uh, uh, stuff like it's got a low art as well as as the poetry. Mm -hmm. So if we don't give people that that I think it, I think it, there's something there for everybody or yeah. there should be. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that. Like the my favorite kinds of art and like the things that I strive to make have a lot of different points of access um, where if you're just looking for a good time, you're just looking to like have an to be entertained like you can do that. But if you're looking to dig deeper to really reflect and to like have to like start conversations, then it, there's also opportunity for that, too. Um whether or not I'm successful at that in my play, who knows? But that's definitely what I what I aim for. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that it's when you do that, when you start with something that maybe seems light, and then mm -hmm. you bring it into something a little more serious. That way, everybody's had a good time, and mm -hmm. then they can leave chewing on something something a little more serious. And I think yeah. that that combination is really a, a thing that that helps to elevate something from just a fun night to something that you might call art. Yeah. And I also think that like, this is also just how I want to make my art. And I think that it's really valuable to have artists who are doing all sorts of different things. And I think that's been a challenge for me is to be able to, especially as a very young artist, to be able to look at other people and be like, I like that a lot. That does not mean I need to do that. Um, it does not mean that that's necessarily like where my skills lie. Right. Um, so being able to like identify like, ah, yes, like this is what I think I'm capable of and what I want to like grow in my skills towards. And yeah, yeah. it's doing that kind of art that has many different access points. Mm -hmm. um, so this is your first full length play. Mm -hmm. um, but have were you writing before you started writing this or was this like your first? I mean, aside from the plays that you created as a kid that you forced <laughs> your brother to do, um, were, is this the first play that you were writing or have you written previous to this? Um, I think it probably, I'm trying to remember now, I think it probably was my first play. I think I had written maybe some monologues here and there, like drama class. I actually wasn't even allowed to take like the playwriting classes at Queens. They either like overlapped with my psychology classes or because I wasn't a major, I couldn't take it. Um, but yeah, this was my first play. I But I did grow up writing a lot, mostly journaling. I started journaling when in 2012 and I still journal, which is really nice actually that I can go back and see like 10 years of journals. Um, and I used to write like books about my stuffed animals, but yeah, this was my first, my first play. I think that journaling is a great entry point into, into that sort of thing. I was as a, as, as a young boy, as a young child, I, I wanted to journal, but I could never really just do it because I would sit down to journal and I would be like, I can't think of anything to say. And then I would <laughs> stop. Um, but other people that I know who journal, um, it's just like, a, it just like starts flowing and it becomes an easy thing to do. And because you're just sort of writing almost stream of consciousness, um, you really become, I think it enables you to become in touch with how you write and, and mm -hmm. where your inclination goes. 
is that is that something that you've found with your your own journaling? Yeah, for sure. I I think especially because I'm someone that's so influenced by I don't know if you can tell influenced by like what people think of me. Writing something that's so private is really really good for me because it gets me in touch with what I sound like, what I write when no one when no one else is going to read it, when I don't have to think about if it's good. So that's been really helpful. Also, I will just say too, I don't know if you've tried, like in terms of journaling and not feeling like you have something to say, like I think that so for people that feel like when they're writing, it's hard to like fully get that stream of consciousness, like doing a voice memo or, <laughs> I mean, you're a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've done that. In fact, yeah. I've done a few essays on the podcast that I always started by, okay, mm -hmm. I'm going to ramble on yeah. this and then I'm going to transcribe it. And then I will find a through line for it. And so that's something that I've, I've certainly done in the past. Somehow, mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, I have always written for myself presentationally. So like you, I'm always thinking about what people will think of it. Yeah. Even if it's just for me, I'm going to, I'm thinking about, um, you know, somebody will read this one day. What will they think? Yeah, my future um, biographers. <laughs> yes, my future biographers. Yes. Um, also, like, the idea of, I think, I mean, most of us in theater, we're all worried about what other people think of us, <laughs> even if we don't admit it. I think that's just a thing because, you know, we put something on, somebody reviews it and then we wait mm -hmm. for their review to come out. And it's all like it's all so fraught. And I think it's something that's very common for all of us. Just the idea of, of, of what other people think of us and our work. Yeah. And I think this is something that's very much in the play. Um because one of the challenges that Mandy has to question because she's presenting herself as this like Asian expert is she starts to like the, especially the production assistant starts to question, like, why do you think this is what people want of you? Like, why do you have to go up and talk about your identity? Like, who are you making this for? And are you just being what white audiences and funders, what, what you think they want from you instead of just saying what you want to say? Um, and that's a question that's kind of been, haunting me for the five years that I've been writing this every single workshop someone would be like well who are you writing this for and at first that used to really really frustrate me because I was like you wouldn't ask a white playwright who they're writing for it would just be like not even a question so at first I kind of like dodged it by <laughs> by being frustrated <laughs> by it but the more I thought about it the thing that's confusing about the play for me and that I finally nailed down is like oh that makes sense is that I call the character Mandy because it was something that Marjorie Chan introduced when she was directing the play at um, Ergo Arts Festival. She's like, we don't know who we're talking about. So she renamed the character Mandy so we could differentiate when we were talking about me, the playwright, and when we were talking about the character. But Mandy, um, Mandy is kind of writing this play for white audiences. And the thing that was challenging is that Amanda <laughs> did not want that to be the case. So it's kind of a weird line to play where... The play that like it's just like layers um, where like the character thinks is like writing it for a certain audience, but I want it to be for um, for Asian artists, a lot, especially for people. Like it, it really means a lot to me when someone will say like I felt very like seen by that, or like you said something that I've been wanting to say. Um, but that's yeah, I feel like a lot of that comes with the like the challenge of what will people think of this. Mm hmm. It's interesting talking about, you know, the question of like, who is this for? Mm -hmm. And while I think perhaps you're correct that, that somebody would only ask that question of somebody who is a person of color. Mm -hmm. I think that there's 
plenty of times when it should be asked yeah. of every playwright and every playwright should consider it. Who is this for? Who am I writing this for? Mm -hmm. They should like make a list. Who, who are you writing this for? Because it's an important question mm -hmm. um, that I think you're right. I think a lot of uh, uh, white playwrights might get away with not doing that. Yeah. Well, I mean, for a long time, the default for like an, a theater, especially a theater audience is like white, like more upper class. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I don't remember. I think it was like the Toronto Vital Signs Report had some stats about like theater in terms of different forms of art is one of the most um, divisive in terms of who is able to attend. And a lot of that is money. Um, although there's, I there's definitely a lot of theater companies that have lower, like lower price tickets or pay what you can. Um, and that's really great. But I also think that some of it is too, just like who's comfortable in that space and like who would even think about like going to see a show, like even some, a lot of it's marketing too. Like even if there is mm. a show that's like for this certain audience and it's like got price points that like anyone can afford, if it's not like marketed that way, then people who have for the past however many years haven't felt like this is a space for me. Like it's going to take a lot more to welcome them into that space. Absolutely. Marketing is a huge part mm -hmm. of it. And also um, I think in some cases we put a lot of things on our stages that we've, and, and theaters, Many theaters survive by their subscriber base, mm -hmm. which skews older. Um, and so I think they tend to put on things that make their older audience more comfortable, mm -hmm. which, of course, is at the detriment to everybody else, because um, the rest of us might not want to see that. And when we could just turn on Netflix, see something that we really yeah. do want to see. So I think theaters kind of shoot themselves in the foot for the future when they play for their 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 subscriber base and 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 aren't putting something out that maybe other people want to s go out and see yeah for sure and as well like not just the subscribers but also the way that like a lot of the theater companies in toronto are nonprofits, so they get their funding mm -hmm. from the funding bodies and from corporations and through sponsorships and obviously that also impacts the kind of shows the kind of programming that theaters do yeah. um I've been thinking a lot. I also work at Nightwood Theater and I do arts admin, which actually it's very nice to like have a creative aspect of my work, but also like a very administrative aspect. Um, but that's something that we've talked about there of like, does the programming follow the funding or does the funding follow the programming? Like sometimes you'll see like a grant or a sponsorship and you'll be like, and it's looking for something very specific. So you create that as opposed to like, I have this really cool project I want to create. So let's go find the funding for it. It's just like which one it's like a chicken or the egg scenario, um, yeah. which is, again, something that I sort of try to talk about in the play, because so there's this fictional funding body in the play. It's called the Canada Council for Greater Diversity in the Arts, uh, the CCGDA. And so the idea is that Mandy has created this play for a program that they have called Dumplings and Diversity. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of like questions throughout the show like how much of this is just because of like the parameters of whatever the funding body was or like what you think they want so that they'll fund you more in the future um so yeah that's definitely something that I, I wanted to try to talk about a little bit with this play and hopefully a comedic way well I think that it's an like I'm glad that Nightwood is talking about that mm -hmm. because I think it's 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 an important question to grapple with um 
are we focusing the theater that we're making on the grants that we could get, or are we just trying to make a good play and finding the, and, and the grants will find us. Um, I, I know it's a balancing act for a mm-hmm. lot of the theaters, but I, I think that, I think that when we focus our, our creation on the grants that we can get, we're limiting ourselves in the kind of theater that we are going to make and the, and the, and, and the audience that we're going to invite in. Mm-hmm because those bodies sometimes want a little bit of, 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 of safety. Yeah, for sure. And it's also, I feel like, I don't know, it's a challenge because you want to, like the art is in service to the audience in some ways, like you're paying for a ticket, like this is like a service we're providing, but also like, I think it's the artist's job to kind of also sort out what it, what is it that like, people don't realize they want, like, can't like, but like Mm -hmm. that they will want. (laughs) And I think it's like that sometimes with, with funding. Sure. But I will, I will throw out a recent example of a movie that Mm -hmm. was, that was out recently. If you had told me that, that I wanted a movie in which Nicolas Cage (laughs) played Nicholas Cage, I wouldn't have known for a second that that was a thing that I wanted. But as mm-hmm. soon as I heard it, I knew exactly that that's what I wanted. Yeah. So we don't, an audience doesn't necessarily know what they want, but they can, they sort of like feel it when it's offered to them, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And this is something that, I mean, I'm definitely still trying to find the answer for for myself and I think everyone every artist probably has a different answer but I'm like what is like why like why (laughs) what's the purpose of the art I'm making and something that I landed on recently it was actually in a video essay about Animal Crossing Um, (laughs) it was very good it was about Animal Crossing and communism it was basically like your island is a commune it was just like presenting this game I don't know how familiar you are with it, but I feel like it's. Oh, I've I've played I've played okay. <laughs> many many hours of Animal Crossing. So yes, yeah. So it basically, was like the video essay was arguing that the that like Animal Crossing is presenting like this potentially like alternate way of life. Like, sure, people like to like rag on Tom Nook for being a capitalist, but at the end of the day, <laughs> you get free housing. Like, there's all of your basic needs are provided for. Um, where am I even going with this? Anyway, in that video essay, there was a quote, and I'm going to misquote this, but basically it was like saying that art, the purpose of art is to serve like the community, like is to, is to aid the community in the creation of its own culture. And I really feel like that's, that's something that I connected with because I feel that especially as I've been working in the arts, I've felt most, um, uh, what's the word I've, I've, I felt I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm um, I <laughs> sorry. As I've been like as I've been working in the arts, like the moments of community are the ones that I feel most passionate about. And so I think that's what I've really latched onto in terms mm-hmm. of like the purpose like the if the art that I want to make, I want it to be um something that's accessible and aiding people in creating something that they feel seen in that they feel represented in. Mhm. Absolutely. Um okay. There's two questions that I really want to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and first off, uh, I know you've told me that you have uh, many hobbies. <laughs> um, you, the specific phrasing was many hobbies. And so I am curious um, about what are your what are some of your many hobbies? Just to give us a sense okay. of, of those many hobbies. Um, so 
Sure. I, I have always been like a very career focused person. And then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh, I guess I got to be a person. I guess I have to like <laughs> exist outside of work. So I picked up many hobbies. Um, I've been crocheting pretty nonstop. Um, I take it everywhere with me. Like I'll crochet. My brother jokes that it's like my idle animation, like in a video game. So I just like whip out <laughs> my crocheting. Um, I also have recently learned... Um, over the pandemic, this was my form of exercise, is I learned like so many K-pop dances. Um, I'm not a good dancer, but I have enjoyed it. Um, I also have been like playing a lot of video games and it's been really, really refreshing to do something creative that isn't connected to my career, that isn't connected to my, va- connected to my value, that value that as a person, it's just like something that I enjoy doing. Um, and I think that's been like very healing to, <laughs> to connect. I also have a list on my phone called retiree activities. I may never get to retire, but it's just a list of like hobbies that I would like to have in the future, like rug making. I'd love to make a rug. I would love to learn to whittle. I want to make paper from scratch. I want to hmm. bird watch. <laughs> you know, I think that that one of the I think that you are not the only person who during the pandemic mm-hmm. had to be like, oh, who, who am I mm-hmm. when I am not doing this theater thing and had to find ways to discover that um, everybody has come up with different things that they learned different ways to pass the time when, when they couldn't be doing say theater, for example, mm-hmm. um, as a fellow video gaming person, I mm-hmm. have to ask um, aside from animal crossing, uh, what's at the top of your list? Oh man, uh, I have a spreadsheet. It's like very intense. I oh have my a goodness. spreadsheet. My favorite video games. I do not have this for theater. I probably should. I probably shouldn't make a spreadsheet <laughs> of the plays I see. But I have a spreadsheet for video games. Um, I, I guess I'll just say that one that I played recently, because otherwise we'll be here for a long time. But one that I played recently that I really liked over the holidays. I played a game called Citizen Sleeper. Have you played it? Heard of no, it? No, I haven't. It's like a dice-based RPG that's set in the future and you're this kind of like Android thing. You're technically property, but you're trying to like live and exist as like a full, like sentient being. Um, And you have these dice and you can choose how you want to spend your energy every day. And you have to put some of it towards like getting food and medicines that you can continue surviving, but otherwise you can kind of choose what you want to do with it. Um, I really enjoyed that. It was like a really interesting critique on capitalism as well. But it also mm. just like taught me I'm someone that will just like go and go and go. Even if I'm running out of energy, I'll like really feel a lot of pressure to help to do the things that other people are expecting of me. But in that game, if you keep doing that and you don't spend any energy taking care of yourself, then eventually you just can't do anything. <laughs> and that was kind of starting to happen to me at the end of last year. I was just getting so burnt out. So playing that game was like, it seems so simple, but it was just a very nice reminder that like I need to also prioritize giving myself what I need to continue ex- existing. <laughs> it's such an important lesson. And mm-hmm. I think that many of us have 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 spent a lot of time saying yes to things, even when we're exhausted. Somebody comes and says, here's a thing. Can you do it? Yes, I can. Do I have the time? I don't know, but I should say yes. And we just put all that energy into it. I know I've gone through that and, and uh, in the last maybe 15 years or so, I've discovered the glory of the word no. Mm -hmm. And and it's so soothing. And I think it is like, I mean, I'm sure it exists in lots of different industries, but I think that especially in theater, there's this 
there's like this thing where you feel like you have to be busy. Like you ever hear like theater people talking and they're like talking about how busy they are, but it's almost like a brag in some ways. And it's like, no, I hope, I genuinely hope that everyone's getting to rest. Um, I think that's very important. Absolutely. There's only other, there's only one other industry where um, I have seen that kind of like, the the bragging about how much they're doing and that's mm-hmm. in like the event industry people who mm. plan conferences and things they do that all the time yeah. but like actor like the amount of time that actors like are moving and doing things and and not really taking time for themselves everybody is just like rife for for uh, burnout yeah totally and i think that's something that i had that really helped me challenge that was the was the realization that of how that's tied to capitalism of feeling like in case unless I'm creating some sort of product I am not of value (laughs) so I must keep creating and churning out content um and that was again to tie it back to my many hobbies um like doing something that like was not creating content like was not wasn't really like doing much it was just something that I was doing because I liked doing has been very helpful and people nice. have asked me, like, will you sell the things you're crocheting? And I've always been like, no, because I think that might <laughs> ruin some of the fun for me. Like, I love, I no, no shame to anyone who's, like, starting their own, like, small business. I think that's great. But I think for me, it was just, like, it's always been a thing that, it's nice to have something that's, like, just a thing that I want to do. Yeah. Deciding to sell a thing changes your relationship with it when yeah. it becomes a business. I knew somebody that used to make leather bags. That was their mm-hmm. hobby. And they would make leather bags. And everybody said, you should sell your bags. And so they tried to start a business creating the bags and they immediately hated it. Yeah. Because of all of the demands of making the bags and they couldn't turn them out fast enough. And just it was just too much. So it's so good to have something that's just yours. Mm-hmm. And that's like that's already like happened to me a little bit in terms of like creating theater and creating art. I still love it. I'm still very passionate about it, but it does change when it's tied to making rent (laughs) or like having enough food. Yeah, for sure. All right. There's one question. There's one thing that you, you, that I, that you said um, that I have been wanting to ask you about this since I saw this. I don't even know if I remember what I said. (laughs) It's and I, I've actually been like buzzing with excitement oh, to I ask know, you about okay. this. Yeah. You said I would like to do a heist one day. Yeah. And I am like, okay, we have to plan this heist. Mm-hmm. Like, what is what okay, what kind of heist do you want to do? And and how much let's be honest, how 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 much have you thought about it? I okay, not not a ton. <laughs> I think I've thought about it a lot on a surface level, um, but not a lot in terms of how it would actually go. Um, I think that, and I also have, I will say a very, very loose definition of a heist. Like in my brain, School of Rock is a heist movie because there's like, I just, I just like the elaborate plan. Everyone has roles. There's a little bit of like a secrecy to it. And then it builds up to like this big comment. Maybe that's theater. Is theater a heist? (laughs) Maybe it is. It's maybe I just want to do theater. (laughs) Um, But I, yeah. If you want to plan a heist, I'm down. I picture it being a sort of Robin Hoody thing. I don't want to steal from anyone who needs the things. Um, stealing from people that do not need it, I think, would be my goal. I also realized that I don't actually have any skills that would be useful in a heist. So I think that's something I should probably work <laughs> on as well. 
the great part about imagining a heist is that you don't actually exactly. need to have the skills. You can yeah. just like think about it in a in more of a romantic fashion about how fun it would be. Because yeah, you know, totally. whenever you watch a heist movie, they look like a lot of fun. Yeah, and there's like always a great soundtrack. I, you know what? I think I could maybe be the getaway driver. I'm a pretty good driver. There you that go. Might be my and, <laughs> man, I, is it the soundtrack that draws us to heist movies? I mean, it might be. I feel like it's that. It's just like the energy of like everything coming together, like the buzz towards that like final moment when it's like, did it go well or like, did it go off without a hitch? What would you, what would your heist role be? Oh my goodness! See, I think it's I think it's an art museum heist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's an art museum heist, and one of the reasons why I say that is because it. When I first heard that the that up until this century nobody cared about the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. Until it was stolen mm. right out of the Louvre. And somebody like walked in, pulled it off the wall, walked out with it, like basically under their coat. And then it captured everybody's imagination. And since then, it's been the be all and end all. And I think about the person who was like, you know, I'm going to steal that that Da Vinci painting that nobody yeah. cares about and just did it. Something about that. Now, that ha- that's got to have a great like 60s, like soundtrack sort yeah. of thing going on. I something about like an art heist just seems like it's super dramatic. Okay, I, that just gave me an idea of our heist. I think that so one of us needs to paint something, mm-hmm. get it in the gallery, and then we'll steal that painting so that it becomes valuable. Oh my god, that is genius! <laughs> so one that of us, do you genius. have any visual art skills? Because I do not. I don't. Okay. I guess I could do something that's like abstract because you can get away with a lot. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I've also um, heard of, um, this is kind of similar to maybe my idea was I've heard of things called anti heists where it's like, instead of going to an art gallery and taking a painting, you're trying to put a painting into the art mm, gallery. Yes. I've so, seen that <laughs> like how long will they, how long will, will it take them to notice that this painting is not part of their collection? Yeah. Okay. So we have some plans here. We can we go, have and, some plans. Yeah, go and work on this and yeah. come back. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Just to bring things back to uh, between a walk and a hop. Yes, <laughs> um, please do. So um, that's uh, with uh, Cahoots Theater at mm-hmm. the uh, uh, Theater Center Incubator, uh, January 28th to February 12th, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, and tickets um, go on sale tomorrow morning. Well, ooh, it, perfect. tomorrow is that's... January 11th, in case you're yes. listening on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> tomorrow, January so... 11th at 9 a.m. That's awesome. I think it sounds like I, I cannot wait to see this show. To be honest mm. with you, I can't wait to see this show. Um, in terms of the food aspects of the show, are you're making hot pot on stage? You're boiling the 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 broth. You're like cooking the food. You're doing the whole thing. Mm. What can an audience expect to be putting in their mouth? Okay, good question. Um, well, first of all, there's two types of tickets. So there is a food ticket, which is a little bit more, and there's also a non-food ticket. So in case you want to come, I don't know <laughs> who this is appealing for, but in case you want to come and just smell the food, but not get to eat it, <laughs> you can do that. It smells very good in there. Like I walk into rehearsal every morning and it smells like garlic um, and it's very hard to focus. But so and for those of you who've had hot butt before, um, it's very much my family's recipe. And I say in the show, like, I don't know if this is like authentic, but this is what my family eats. So there's um, a broth, which is like a chicken flavored vegetable stock. Um, there's a lot of vegetables. There's some mushrooms. There's some fish balls. There's lamb and beef. There's also the option for vegetarians. 
as well. And there's tofu and there's bok choy. Um, and then there's like an array of sauces to create your own sauce bowl too. So it's very good. Um, I have become aware throughout the workshopping and rehearsal process that I have to come well fed to this show because otherwise I'm not going to be able to focus because it just smells so good. <laughs> that's, that's a good, that's a good lesson to learn yeah. to, before a show. Like I always have to eat just enough that I have energy, but I can't feel he like heavy. But mm -hmm. um, I think that I, if I was in your shoes, I would definitely need to have like a full meal before. Yeah. Doing <laughs> yeah. I wrote into the play that, my character takes like one bite of lamb because it's like a cooking demo as well as like the first half of the play is more cooking demo where I like show you how to prepare the broth and like chop the veggies and like walk through all of the ingredients. And then the second half is more like traditional dinner theater where the audience is just eating at that point. And I'm doing my little like hijinks on stage. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. I, I've enjoyed our conversation. And like I said, I can't wait to see this show. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to our heist. <laughs> <laughs> this has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.